The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So greetings. Um, I think to say this, um, this is a Dharma talk would be a little bit presumptuous. I'm not a Dharma teacher, I'm just a lay practitioner. And um, I thought I would uh, talk about possibly impediments to practice or, or um, something along those lines. But I thought it should just be a continuation of the way-seeing talk that uh, I did, uh, I don't know how many months ago, but a few months ago, since I'm uh, still um, way-seeking, I guess. So I'd like to share and talk about um, how to cultivate support and practice and later maybe open it up for discussion or Q&A on what uh, aids your practice and what has enabled your practice and maybe possibly what uh, hinders your practice. So this evening will be a little bit about developing, maintaining, and supporting practice and whatever we come to mean by that. So, I was talking to a friend the other day and we were sort of ruminating about, well, the notion of practice and what is practice and what is not practice. And it seems when you first get involved and embark in sitting and interested in the Dharma and Buddhism, etc. It's somewhat segmented. You hear the Dharma, catch a podcast, um, think about going to IMC, maybe on Sunday, or maybe just catch the podcast, or maybe just catch the second sitting or maybe just catch Gil's talk or maybe Monday. Um, But over time, um, there tends to be, depending on, I guess, cause and conditions and your desire and intention, um, more of a momentum that is developed. And... um, you start realizing that, and this does take time, but you start realizing that everything is practice. And your time in the checkout stand as you um, are waiting or are in line at the gas station or whatever, you find yourself cultivating awareness in what's going on. Where's your body? How's your body feeling? Is there tension? When you walk into a room, you become much more aware and um, in tune with just the various manifestations of bodily awareness and things. So it's a, it's a gradual practice that takes time, but 
and cultivation, but um, it's interesting how it builds momentum. And so the question is, how can one develop, I'd hate to say optimize, because that's such a doing, but you want to be able to have a momentum and cultivate good habits and, and the practice. So I think it revolves around initial intention and sila. And in, with intention, um, I see it as you're basically delighted in the Dharma and pursue it and or you're suffering and trying to find a way out of suffering and also are pursuing the Dharma. And with both, luckily you travel towards freedom. But um, initially when I uh, heard the Dharma when I was a teenager, it felt like coming home. And when I discovered IMC, it felt like coming home. And the intention was to cultivate a wholesomeness that uh, was discovered and and could be uh, could be developed, which was um, great and, and unusual. So, as one's momentum in practice, however we wanted to find that, I sort of see that as action and meditation develops. Uh, sila, or, um, well, sila gets developed, or it's virtue in, in English. Um, and you get to examine your life and the things that one entertained and did, uh, you discovered the maxim that garbage in equals garbage out is really true. And the, um, the things you put in and cultivate are um, really grist for the mill as far as how you're able to go through life with life and with people. Um, and you become much more aware of the things you say, the actions you do, the livelihood you entertain than, than previously. And frankly, it's probably an impediment <laughs> to, uh, I guess, wow, the things that you said and the things that you did and the things that you thought were okay were at one point... Um, okay, and uh, you look back and go, oh my gosh, I can't imagine I entertained that. So, there's an excerpt from the the Dharmapada as it begins that I love. I'll just read it. That points to that. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows. As the wagon wheel follows the hoof of an ox. 
All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. And that, um, what I discovered is things just work out better when right speech, action, and livelihood is, is followed. And things just, over time, mature in a very interesting and odd way. Um, the things you'd entertain to do previously, you couldn't imagine wanting to go down that path. I remember um, not too long ago discovering BitTorrent and uh, the ability to download, gee, all these movies and records and things that I hadn't had. And... Um, my greed and enthusiasm started downloading a bunch of stuff. And then I, I realized, whoa, this uh, is not freely given. And just seeing that um, put a full stop to it. I, there was no desire to um, continue that action. It wasn't that... Um, it was oh my God, what I've done, I'm going to hell. It was like, wow, this is just unskillful and it doesn't feel right. And it's just very easy to drop those types of things. So in a way you mature in, in odd ways, in, in good ways. Um, and you, you get really bothered if you uninten- unintentionally harm or take things that are not really given. And you start looking at the precepts and the the things that the precepts afford and allow yourself and others to be and what Gil has mentioned in the past that's to be fearless by giving others the freedom from your right actions, right speech, right morality. You allow others the freedom to be fearless, which is an incredible uh, gift. So, many adverse qualities tend to fall away. I still have quite a few, and uh, but I found that probably right speech is probably the biggest obstacle that um, uh, I face and others others face. Um, there's so much momentum of self with right speech or speech that you get caught up. And uh, sometimes things are said, obviously, that would like to be retracted. So the impetus, the thrust of where speech comes from is really truly to be examined. And the Buddha um, points to 
right speech throughout the various suttas as a very important component. It's sort of where it seems the good and bad karma, if you can label karma good and bad, um, gen to generate, tend to generate. So, so right speech is, um, it's actually easier if you look at it as just the ability to tell the truth, speak friendly and warmly and gently and talk only when necessary, which that's the hard part, I think. Um, so other things that help in supporting practice that I found, obviously, is friends and family. The Sangha, obviously, but um, the friends that, as I look in my life, um, the friends that I continue to have that don't have quote-unquote a practice are moving along the same path as we all are. Um, this practice, meditating, going to retreats, reading the suttas, studying, is a, is a very concentrated focus on one's actions, one's conduct, one's sila, concentration, wisdom. It's a, it's a training. Um, but the activities and actions of your oldest friends, if they continue to be your oldest friends, they'll be along the same trajectory as you, just probably not as concentrated because of, quote-unquote, this practice. But they're, they're along for the ride, and they're looking for freedom and liberation. And uh, they continue to deserve to be your friends. So don't forget your other friends as we go along in along this path because they're very important. Um, and with family, families, you know, as as we look at Buddhism in the Western world, I think we're all trying to figure out well how does this how can I integrate this with my life? How can we, uh, meditation, retreat, dharma talk, etc., um, integrate? And there's, I think, different lifestyle models. I picked this up on, a, I forget which website, and I thought it was a pretty good example of different formats. There's a householder's model, which you have kids, mortgages, significant others, possibly. Um, there's living as a modern monk. Your day is basically scheduled around practice yeah, with a minimum of duties, work and money. And uh, lay life, retreat life. Basically, you work for retreat time. You just... Uh, and I think we know uh, 
examples of, of those individuals who try to hold those types of lifestyles in this very busy and somewhat confusing uh, culture we have. So, so trying to figure out how to balance family is, can be difficult. Um, I have a wonderful spouse, 30 years plus, and three kids, um, some health issues. I know others who have um, spouses and kids who maintain a practice. But it seems that there's a, a dichotomy that, it, one, there's a couple of things that happen. When you're in, let's say, retreat or meditating, you think, wow, I should be with my kids or the family or whatever. And when you're with the family and doing whatever, you think, God, I wish I was on retreat. And you have this schism. And it's unfortunately wrong view <laughs> because um, it's all practice. Um, it's just the what you've signed up for. And um, it's not like uh, you're the Buddha who can just take off and have a royal court take care of your your kid and wives. I guess he had wives. Um, you're, you know, you've hopefully made a commitment and you're signed up for it and uh, that's the way it goes. So it's a, it's a balancing act that is, can be difficult with uh, the, uh, all the pulls that uh, modern society has and the responsibility that, that you have and that you've uh, signed up for. So, um, so with uh, my example, I I think I did it actually fairly poorly. I I really don't proselytize, and I, I um, great support from my wife and and family. But early on, uh, or during the years of, of practice, there's general support that they have for me and I have for them, etc. I mean, it's mutual support of whatever we're interested in. But it's, um, it's sort of like, well, didn't you just go on retreat? <laughs> or something along those lines. Like, yeah, but, you know, it's, uh, this one's 10-day uh, and it's with, you know, Lee Brasington and, you know, I haven't done that. Um, without them understanding the path and actually what's going on, it'll be sort of like, uh, oh, you're going to play golf again. Okay, uh, great. Uh, I support you in that if that's what you like to do. It's obviously not the same thing, but, uh, but there is that support, but there's not that understanding. So the, the mistake, frankly, I made is not inviting um, periodically along my spouse or my kids or whatever to say, well, this is what's going on if you want to do this or do something at Spirit Rock. Because I'm 
so adverse to, uh, I know that's my own issues, so adverse to proselytizing and shoving something down somebody's throat that may or may not be appropriate. And I would just sort of like, okay, well, I'm going to do my own thing. And I was uh, given the freedom to do my own thing, but understanding along the way uh, really helps support not only your practice, but uh, the household that you're uh, maintaining and uh, you want to see healthy and thriving. So um, that was a, that was sort of a big, not insight, but um, I guess advice for all you householders out there. Or anything like me, uh, include your significant other periodically so they can decline. You know? It's like, do you want to go to meditate? No, I think I'm going to do whatever. It's okay, that's fine. But give them the option. I never gave them really the option, and it's, it's a good thing. So. See, I don't know where I am in my ramble. Let me look here. Um, So obviously, to develop and maintain and create momentum for a practice, um, sitting is probably one of the main things we do. Um, Mary Grace Orr had a really nice, uh, she's a lovely Dharma teacher down in Santa Cruz. And I sat a Vajrapani retreat with her, maybe it was last year. Um, and she would encourage those who were so busy and couldn't find the time to sit basically what I call it, I figure what she called it, but I call it just a drive-by. Just go by the cushion, sit for 10 seconds, and then get up and go. Um, just get in the habit of sitting down, count to 10, and then go. It's, you know, it really depends on your intention. If if you want to cultivate a practice, you will, and you'll find ways to do it. And once the, I guess, bug hits you, um, you'll, it'll take a, on a life of its own, and you'll find after, you'll find yourself after your retreat to looking at when the next possible retreat is, and when the sign-up period is, and it's, um, it's just, <laughs> I don't know why, but it's, it's a lot of fun um, just being involved in that. So um, sitting is good. And then, as I mentioned, retreat. Retreat is good. Retreat can be anywhere from a couple hours to a half day to some friends just came back from a three-month retreat. And... Um, it's all good. And since everything is practice, you might look at everything as retreat, though that's not exactly true. 
With retreat, you're able to explore and settle into different areas with good instructions that you just won't be able to access otherwise. And some people have an amazing ability to do a short, a lot of work in a short period of time. And um, some of us, me included, take time for things to unfold. And that's why, you know, 10 day, two week, a month, three months, isn't unreasonable. It's not unreasonable when you're trying to become liberated and see three characteristics and all the good stuff that uh, you hear about. So it's a commitment, but it's a relatively short commitment given the amount of time that you put in now in a concentrated, focused manner versus meandering around in life, kind of bumping into the lessons that you inevitably have and uh, work through. Uh, it's time really well spent. So, um, retreat is good. Um, let's see. And then, of course, maintaining the the practices. This is a combination of sitting, hearing the Dharma, having good friends, a supportive Sangha. A place like IMC helps, but uh, there are many people out there who, who manage to carve out a practice that are very strong and uh, fruitful uh, through their daily practice and going on a retreat. So, so the hopefully the thrust of this monologue has been somewhat comprehensible. Um, I don't know how much time we have. We have 15 minutes that if you have any advice on practice, maintaining practice, developing practice, giving up practice, well, it'd be great to, uh, great to hear. No, let me let me quote something from uh, Atisha. It's an 11th century Tibetan Buddhist master about Buddhism. <coughs> the greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is the continual awareness. <coughs> 
The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. And the greatest action is not conforming with the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. And the greatest goodness is a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. And the greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. And the greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. Atisha. Some guy in Tibet, <laughs> 11th century. So, Buddhist master. I, I ran into that quote and I thought it was, it was really cool. I have a question, Victor. What has been, along your path of practice, the greatest surprise that you found? how much I get in my own way, how much um, by doing effort, it makes more effort. Um, It's sort of like my sense of direction. My sense of direction is really bad. If I think something is one way, on where we go that way, it'll be wrong. So I'll go, okay, I know it's, I think it's this way, so I, I'm going to go the other way because I'm always wrong, I'll go the other way. And invariably, that'll be wrong. <laughs> so, um, to not overthink um, things in the practice. So, with um, sitting, And on retreat, it's been really more of an embodied sense of seeing and feeling, really feeling the body and and feeling tones and how to maneuver as opposed to having a construct and thinking things should be a certain way. I mean, early in practice... uh, especially concentration retreats, I had a fixed idea of how things should unfold and I just dug myself into these great holes that uh, took a long time to get out of. So it's, uh, it's really a non-doing that has helped. Thank you. Thank you, Victor. I I I really warmed to the to that quote, which quite encapsulated a number of the things that you had said, and uh, particularly the wisdom of trying to see through appearances. You you spent some time um, working with intention, and so when I think about seeing through appearances, and also in light of your answer to Kim's question just now. Um, 
trying to get out of one's own way or trying to see through to what is the real motivation here. Um, so I guess I would, I would really like to explore a little bit more um, as it's an active exploration for me um, about when, when you see the mixed motivations for, as Atisha is his name, um, might be serving others. It may come from a partially pure heart, but there may be other issues bound up in it that we're too ignorant to see. How, how do you work with that? And is there skill in saying the wrong way, the wrong way? Because it, when I hear it, it hurts. I mean, it, it hurts my heart to hear you tell yourself it's the wrong way. Because I see you as beautiful. Well, thank you. Um, maybe wrong is, I would say, unskilled. Um, unskilled way things that help or hinder and the things that um, a mixed action so you know, you, you're doing something but you know, within the doing there is a uh, there's true altruism but there's also possibly a, a shadow of um, greed you know your own desire, something going on. Um, just try to take the good. You know, it's like if you're um, giving something to somebody, and at the same time going internally, look at me, how wonderful I am giving this something to somebody. That somebody is still getting something. And we'll appreciate that something. And your practice will unfold at some point and you'll see that. You'll see that you'll, it's a mixed um, action. And when you see that, you'll, go, you'll probably um, easily drop the... the uh, well, I don't know if you'll easily drop, but you'll certainly see the, the self-motivated aggrandizement or whatever is behind that mixed action. And, um, you know, depending on your composition, you'll either give yourself a pass or beat yourself up, I mean, or somewhere in between. And our job is to work through that so it's just a clean action without really agenda. I, for, for a period of time, I, uh, whenever I saw somebody panhandling or some, you know, on the street, on the corner, you know, I would sense aversion. You know, it's like, uh, so I would, okay, well, I see aversion, but I would give the person whatever, you know, um, a dollar. It didn't really matter. It was the, the notion of going through the motion of confronting what I was feeling for that individual. I mean, the individual obviously needed something. So the intention for that was there to help. But there was mixed, you know, there's fear and there's other things going on. But in order to explore that, 
to go through the motion and see what arose. Oh, there's generosity, there's fear, there's judgment, there's, look at all those things. And by doing that you, over and over, you just get to see them. And uh, it's just an exercise to, to see. So, um, you know, what, what we need for practice is really just in front of us. It's how we bump into our lives constantly, moment to moment. And it seems that uh, it's all grist for the mill. Thank you, Victor. Um, I just noticed that you're just talking from a really deep place, and I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. It's um, For me, it, it's a reflection of your practice, so thank you for that gift. Um, I also really think it's beautiful that you said not to forget our, our friends who aren't on the path. And... Um, you know, I think for me that's where sometimes I find it challenging is um, family and friends who aren't on the path and engaging with them in skillful or not skillful ways and um, feeling like they just, quote-unquote, don't understand. <laughs> um, so... You know, at the end of the day, we are all human beings just trying to be happy, and we all have that in common. And um, not to see myself as separate just because I'm really on a, you know, a, a specific, different path, but it's all the same. We're all going the same place, and that's, um, you know, I think one of the things in terms of um, Sila is inclusive, being inclusive um, and not exclusive. And so something I, I really work with. So, um, so I'm glad you mentioned that. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I do think we're, um, you know, all my oldest friends are, they don't know it, but they're, you know, they're on, they're on the path. And just, uh, you know, with specific practice, but they are looking for liberation and freedom from suffering, love, happiness, contentment, so, and, um, yeah. <laughs> Back of you. Thank you for coming. Uh, I wanted you to relate to your own medical, physical, um, situation and specifically how the practice has helped you avoid a depression or fear, anxiety, worry, um, living in the future, wondering how things are going to turn out mm. that, that many people would do if they had serious illnesses or similar problems going on. How How is how has your application helped you, and, and how have you applied it to that problem? Well, um, 
the mind has a great ability to make stories and proliferate these stories and associate and one thing to another to another and uh, create great edifices and structures of um, what may or may not be real. So with this practice and meditation and trying to be present for what is, um, you know, in my particular situation, I, I have been, you know, very sick and have felt very sick in, in the past. Um, it's not unlike being present for anything else. Um, whether you're on the bench or on the cushion and your knee is uh, in pain and uh, you can hardly wait to get out or something else is going on. It's just that that's going on. So there's a physicality that exists that can be uncomfortable. That we all, you know, we all have senses and nerve endings and we're all going to experience pleasure and pain. That's just kind of, here we are, that's our lot in life. Everything else is optional. Um, one can experience the physicality but not necessarily go into anything else but that. It's not that you escape um, unpleasantness. Unpleasantness exists, I'm afraid. Um, but you don't cling to things that are not there or maybe possible or I mean, you do things to, to help yourself, take medicine, get warm, get cool, whatever one is, one's needs. But um, it's the ability just to sit with what arises. And it's a training. Um, it's a training of just being present over and over. Um, so it's not, you don't escape, escape, I don't think, I don't know, I haven't figured out how to do it. Um, but uh, you don't create either. So it's, I think the, a, a lot of the pain and suffering that I've experience in the past has been through my own creation, through my own mental manifestations of what is, what could be, what might be, what if it doesn't, what if it does. And it's really the habit of mind of catching those habits, because they're, they're just habits of mind, um, that allow you to steer 
your attention to, to other things. Um, it's, it's not easy, but it's, you know, it's kind of the practice. It's like, that's what we do. It's like, where's the mind? Oh, mind's fantasizing, mind's worrying, mind's anxious, mind is happy, mind is, mind is present, mind is still. Um, so I think uh, for me that's how it's, the practice has helped um, me go through those various health aspects that um, it's currently unfolding. So I don't know if that answered your question. If not, it's we've wasted a perfectly good hour and a half, and I think it's time to go. in how you experience courage moving through you. Mm. I don't think <laughs> there ain't no courage there. <laughs> uh, there is um, you know I, there's uh, one of the things that Jacques Verdun, who's uh, the guy up that teaches um, up in San Quentin, that where he is, uh, the inmates there. And uh, the inmates say there's only three things you can do. You can run, you can hide, or you can face the fire. And, you know, you just have a choice. And whatever you think will work best, I think one should do. Maybe, you know, running and hiding is good. For me, um, always sort of confronting what is there and apparent has always worked for me. So it's kind of a habit of just facing, you know, whatever's coming down the pike. That tends to work out. Um, you know, it's going to work out one way or the other. Whatever you do. So, for me, it's a. Uh, it's. I like to see. I like to be present. I like to experience. And. Uh, you know, this is the big. You know, maybe there's incarnation. Maybe there's not. You know, you don't, if there isn't, or if there is, you still don't want to miss anything, do you? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's good to good to face things. Oh, that's and you flinch. You know, you face and go, oh, that's all. 
thanks guys.